0: It's good to have Brother and Sister Davis back. We always miss them. It's just good to have people who served on the mission field. And this is the first question. I'm going to ask one, two, three, four, five questions to start us off here. Maybe six. Do you believe there is a specific call to missions? Just... Answering her your head. And where does that call originate? And to what extent and degree is that calling for all believers? And what prompts us to hear that call? If there is such a call, what causes us to hear it? And why would that call press us? Presses to the point that it alters our current way of relationships. How we relate to people. Now I want to focus tonight on the call to evangelism. Now I said missions to begin, you know, a cause that, do you believe that there's a specific call? But I changed the word from plural to singular. Is there a specific call to mission? A mission or the mission? And do you believe that is a specific call for all people, not just those to go to foreign lands? For each of us? You realize that evangelism is something that has to be pronounced, something that has to be declared either verbally or in print. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this is early in Paul's first correspondence to, to the believers in Corinth, a very, very secular city. A city we really wouldn't want to move to and raise our family in. A corrupt city, extreme corruption. Prostitution to the point that the temple's that prostitutes were in, that that was part of the worship system in Corinth. That was how decadent the city. And Paul writes something very interesting in the early part of that first correspondence. He said, For the preaching of the cross to them that are perishing is foolishness. But to us who are saved, it is the power of God. God. And later Paul would surmise in his writing to the believers in Rome when he said in chapter 9, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then he asks a series of questions, doesn't he? How can they call on him whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a voice, a preacher, a proclaimer. You know, there's persuasions, there's denominations and theological posturing here that a woman could stand out here and talk, but she can't stand behind that and talk because that's reserved for men. And yet, some of those groups send women all over the world. But I guess they can preach just as long as they're not behind a lectern. That's how silly that can be. And then I read one of the great biographies that I've ever read, Catherine Booth. She started her public preaching in 1860. I think there might have been a few problems with her preaching. In 1860? I would think so. But she was not just a co-founder of the Salvation Army with her husband, William Booth, but early in her, in her pulpit preaching, one of the men that was there at Exeter Hall in London said, you know, if I ever get in trouble with the law, don't really call a good attorney I want that woman to defend me. She was so well thought of that when she died in 1890 from cancer, in October of 1890, they arranged for her memorial service in a 3,000 seat Salvation Hall church, the largest they had. Viewing and visitation took five days. They moved most of the seating in in the front of her casket, which was glass covered. I don't know if I'd want to. that, but that's the way they did it. And it's estimated that 50,000 people came to honor her. She was known as one of the great preachers. And a bunch of people got saved. I guess they didn't know that she wasn't supposed to be preaching. They got saved anyway. The preaching of the gospel is to some people foolishness. But to others, it becomes the power of God to salvation. And knowing that, it's worth taking the risk, isn't it? Some might, you know, ridicule it, reject it. But for those who hear it, and are converted, it's worth preaching. And this is early Christianity. This is a secular world that they lived in. And by its very nature, you know, the only organized religion in the Roman world at that time was Judaism. And here comes Christianity that is already at odds with Judaism, right? And the other is just pagan practices, idolatry, emperor worship. You name it, deities, whatever, people just worship all kinds of stuff. And so you have this pagan culture and you have the Judaistic culture and here comes Christianity and it's not welcomed by either side. And yet here it is in its infant state, shaking the world. People getting saved. That new sect of believers called Christians was causing quite a disturbance. I want you to listen to something that Tacitus said. He's probably considered the greatest historian of that era of Roman history. And he was writing about the reign of Nero. And in his writings, he references Christ, his resurrection, and the existence of Christians in Rome. And this is, he wrote from 55 to like 117 AD. But he said this, he says, Consequently, to get rid of the report, Um, Nero fastened the guilt that, you know, Rome had a fire and so Nero blamed it on the Christians. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians, by their populace. Christus, meaning Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of our Procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, superstition thus checked for the movement again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular, they considered Christianity as an evil presence to their idolatrous practices. In fact, they called Christians atheists because they didn't believe in the idols that the Roman culture worshipped, so therefore they were called atheists. I bring this up because Christianity was launched in a worse secular culture than what we have today. And I'm, I'm going to get to something in just a moment. I'm going to give... You five, the five most profound verses that relate to world evangelism here in just a moment. Five passages of scripture that contain the greatest references to world evangelism. But before I do, I want you to see what our challenges are. Obviously, when Jesus spoke to his followers and told them to go to the ends of the earth and preach this message, He knew what they were going to face. And he sent them out into a world that was going to be basically hostile to them. So what kind of world do we have around us? I've got some slides here I want to show you. And the first one is, this is from a Pew report. I don't know if you can see that. You can see that okay? Um, I tried to enlarge it as much as I could. In fact... I sliced up this chart from the top from the bottom. But this is a Pew report done in the summer of 2014. It was one of the most recent surveys. 35,000 people were interviewed for this survey. So it wasn't a small portion of people. And it tracked the seven years between 2007 and 2014. And you see the two columns, and it shows you the change... In those who say they're Christian, <clears throat> Protestant. In 2007, it was 51.3 percent. Now it's 46.5. Evangelicals 26.3 to 25.4. It goes down. It shows Catholic, Orthodox Christians, Mormons, and uh, some of them are basically not changed, so they don't have really that registered. But you see the overall effect at the top that there's a minus almost of 8% of people who claim Christianity. And if you go to the next slide, this is where the other percents are found. Non-Christian faith, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, other world religions, other faiths. And you see, overall, there's a just slightly over 1% increase. But here is a telling story about our culture and the change. We're just talking about seven years. Unaffiliated was 16% of the population in 2007. Now it's almost 23%. It's almost a fourth. Um, it increased. It has the largest increase, 6.7%. And it breaks it down from, and it's not so much that you know, there's an increase in atheists and agnostics, but it's that nothing-in-particular group that shows the increase. Now, why is that? We'll go to slide three. This is, tracks the unaffiliated... You know, and this, this is all on the Pew report. You can Google this and find this. The Catholics, mainline Protestants, suffer the largest of losses... And it shows you the breakdown and the net results of those who left the group. That this tracks what, where was where was the movement at? Um, evangelical, like eight percent left, nine percent entered, and actually we had a net gain of one point five in evangelical. It is the only group that showed a net gain. Now it's. Does it is it keeping up with population? No. Okay, that that's the sad part. Someone said in the symbols of God, in, in the evangelical churches, which is Simmons of God is in that group. Mainline is Methodist, Episcopalian, um, Lutheran. They've separated all of them from Catholic. So that's the, what they call mainline denominations. They've really taken the largest hit in Catholicism. Has taken the largest hit out of the group at 10% loss. Um, That shows you that there's movement, people leaving one group, and where are they going? Well, a lot of them are going to that unaffiliated. Now, here to me is one of the most troubling, this last slide, or maybe we're not near the last slide, next to the last slide. If you want to know, can you read that? Can you read that? Because it gives you the ages of these groups, okay, where they were born. You hear millennials. Well, this is a pretty good graphic because there's two groups of millennials. Older millennials born from 81 to 89. And the younger millennials born from 1990 to 1996. A telling graphic here as to where our challenge is in preaching the gospel, presenting the gospel, and seeing people come to faith. Um, look at the percentage of Christians in the call it the silent generation, those born before 45, 85% consider themselves Christians. You go over to the younger and older millennials, and it's in the 56, 57%. Me and the, the, almost half of them don't consider themselves that, and a lot of them make up that unaffiliated. If you look down under the older and younger millennials, thirty-four and thirty-six percent, respectively, just don't have an attachment at all. It's not it's not a deal with them. It's, it doesn't really matter. They may say they're they're atheists, uh, but it's really a lot of them is just like, nah. I don't, you know, it may be, it may not be. Maybe some classify that agnostic, but uh, there's a lot of them just like, it's it's not relevant to me, you know. So this is a state in which the church is presented, the climate, the culture. How do we hear the call of God to evangelize our current world? Now, let me go back to the first question. Do you believe there is a call of God? to reach our current world, okay? Here's, here's the follow Are we listening to that call? And if we are listening to that call, what are we doing? And is there a way to reach? You know, I, I look at what God is doing in Caiapha, and I was like, yes. And I, I really believe they're going to, you know, attack some of these percentages in that group that's on campus. Amen. The last slide is, just shows you a graphic of where the the declines are, and where the increases are. Other faiths. That bottom one. This is again from 2007 to 2014. The bottom is include Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, other world religions, other faiths. And you see, there's a 4.7 to the 5.9 in that group. But again, when you look at the unaffiliated. It is second only to evangelical Protestant. And just barely behind it. So what does that tell you about our culture? Well, we're not a Christian nation. We have Christians in our country. But it shows you the challenges. Now, what, what, what are we supposed to do? I really believe this is an opportunity for the church to really step up and engage people in the conversation about eternity, about the gospel. Here's the five verses I'm going to take you to. And I'm, we're just going to kind of focus over these next few Wednesday nights on evangelism. How... How can we be better at personal evangelism? Here's the five verses I'm going to share with you this evening. And I'm going to go through them, and then I'm going to ask you some questions in regard to them. Matthew 28, of course, the end of Matthew's gospel. And Jesus said to them, verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And one little statement here is, we can only disciple believers. We can't disciple those who aren't believers. I so, well, of course we don't try to do that. We may be attempting that in some regard. People have, have they confessed their faith in Christ? Have they really came to that place that says, I know that He's my Lord and Savior. The last two weeks, this week and last week, I've had people to call me and tell me of someone being at DCH Hospital. One call came from Mobile, from Cheryl Gray. A young lady, I guess maybe 30 in her, maybe not quite 30, but said this, this young lady was a child in our ministry in Mobile. She told me all the entanglements of this young woman's life. And said so she's not doing good, she's in intensive care. I'm trying to get up there. Can you go and see her? I said, I'll I'll head up there now. And I had a chance to talk to her, talk to her about the Lord, and she told me she was away from the Lord. And I just shared with her how to get back to the Lord. I wished I could tell you that she jumped at the opportunity to to get some things sorted out with the Lord. But um, I just shared with her, and she... She didn't give me any, any any indication either way, but I just hoped when I left that praying with her and encouraging her and telling her that God's grace is great and there's no entanglement and that He can't break and He will heal our souls and heal our lives and she definitely needed that. And today I had a mother call me and tell me that her son was in intensive care, and uh, and I went and got a chance to talk with him and and uh, ask him where he stood with the Lord. You know, we, we really need... Pe- people have physical healings, but I'm going to tell you, that's not their biggest need. We, we treat the physical as though it's the most important need. It's important, but it's not the most important. The most important is a person's place with Christ. He's the answer to their life. He's, he's the Savior of the, of the world. He's the one that died on the cross for them. And we, we had the opportunity. You know, I'm, I, I have n- never, except I say never, only in one occasion have I had anybody walked in to, to do that. Somebody says, I got somebody, a relative. In this case, it was a, a lady in the church's brother. and he says, he's dying and doesn't look good. and He doesn't know the Lord and... I walked in there and talked to him and asked him if I could pray with him. He said, No. <laughs> no, no, I don't want you praying. Okay. You know, but that's his choice, isn't it? But is it that time to kind of like just lollygag around and, you know, try to make them feel good? And No, I, to me, it's like you got to go for it. You know, lay it on the line. If you're about to, you know, in other times I've went up to pray with people. And one man, I says, you know, do you know Jesus? Have you committed your life? He says, yes. And I was told he didn't. He said, he's lost, lost as he can be. And I said, "Uh, so when when did you get right with the Lord? He says, yesterday. (laughs) I said, well, that's great. And he looked at me and he says, I figured if I wasn't going to do it now, I wasn't going to ever do it. I said, you figured right. You know, I didn't need to be there. You know, the people that had worked with him and talked to him and gave him the truth, he knew what to do. Isn't that great? But he's right. If you're not going to do it then when you're facing, you know, unless a miracle takes place, you're facing death. And I just think we need to hear the call of God to be urgent again where people stand with the Lord. Here's the second verse. At the end of Mark's account, Mark 16. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation, all creatures. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak with new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands and they will drink deadly poison, will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. And after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out, preached everywhere. There's that preaching again, that proclamation of the good news. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed His word by the signs that accompany it. Go with me to Luke chapter 24. The closing words of Luke's account. These are not unfamiliar with you, but I'm just giving you five of the most succinct passages and references to world evangelism, not pocket evangelism, not evangelism in Tuscaloosa. We're talking about world evangelism. Just as much as God called brother and sister Davis to go to India, He calls us to go to Tuscaloosa. He calls us to go across the street. He calls us here. And He told them, this is verse 46, this is what is written, Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance... For the forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations, world evangelism, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. John 20, verse 21 is the fourth passage. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. The fifth verse is Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now let me ask you, what common themes do you find in those passages? What common themes? Do what? Yeah, I I think power, anointing, uh, the enabling, that he's just not telling them to do something, but he's promising that there's going to be an enabling presence of the power of God in their lives. So, you know, we like, we can say, well, you know, that's not my calling. That's not my gift. It is our command. This is not one of the gifts of the Spirit. This is not an office of the church. You know, I was reading Scott McGevney, Strickland, Scott's update, and cursing their little seven-year-old daughter, they're in Turkey. They had to leave Kyrgyzstan. But they're in Turkey, and first day of school, first day of school for a seven-year-old little girl, going to a school of about 700 students. And they prepared. They tried to to prep her that, you know, you may be there, and you may not find anybody that speaks English. And I doubt if she's picked up the language there already. So they just tried to kind of prepare. And they prayed over, and she come home, and she told him, said, you know, when you left, I felt real lonely and thought about crying. But then I prayed and asked Jesus not to let me be lonely and to give me a friend that speaks English. And at lunch, she found someone that spoke English, a friend. And she said she told this little girl, You know, God created the world. And Jesus died on the cross for us. And she said, I wasn't lonely either. And Scott's point was if a seven-year-old can tell a Muslim child in a Muslim country who Jesus is, what in the world are we doing? If a child can do this, you know what? She's doing this. And she prayed and the Lord empowered her to do that. if, If we're nervous and it's not our deal, what's missing? The Holy Spirit's enabling power that pushes us past you know, things were not comfortable. I'm not, I'm not comfortable doing that. Well, who? I don't think Paul was comfortable getting stoned and run out of town. I think it was very uncomfortable for him. You know, and all the threats that he had on his life. You know, it, it just wasn't like, well, this is a piece of cake. They stoned me again. <clears throat> but it was the empowering presence of God in his life. What are, what other things you find common in this? It's The breadth of it. It's not regional. I said one time years ago in another church I was pastoring because it was, I know you find this hard, there was, a, there's, there was a little racism in where we were pastoring. It just drove me crazy. And I told a church, it was just a little bit, not, not most people, but there was people there. I was like, and I, I told them, I said, the, the Great Commission is not color coded. He didn't say white people go reach white people and, and Asian go reach Asian and African American go reach. He, he didn't color code it. He said just go. And I had some pushback from making that statement. But I needed to make push back. <laughs> I needed to make them uncomfortable. But that is the Great Commission. I was pastoring another church, not this one. Had a Brazilian brother, Brother Santos. You remember El Pedro dos Santos? He's Brazilian, but he looks African-American. But his practice was, about an hour before he preached in the services, yeah, he'd go and stay at the altar for about an hour and pray. And he was at that church that I was pastoring, praying at the altar. Somebody says, there's a, there's a black guy at the altar praying. I said, what? He says, yeah, there's a black guy at the altar praying. And I walked in and I said, that's Brother Santos. I said, he's from Brazil. And I, I kid you not, this was a reaction. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, what was that? If he's Brazilian, it's okay. Maybe if he is across the, the town from us, it's not okay. You know, look at what Jesus is a Jewish Messiah dying for all human beings on the face of the earth, and he tells us and the church, which is all Jewish people, when he was telling them this, to go everywhere, including what area? Started with Jerusalem, Judea. What's next? Samaria. Samaria. And one of the greatest revivals they had in the book of Acts was in Samaria. Samaria. Fancy that. Fancy that. And they had to send a couple of apostles up there to help them all get baptized in the Holy Spirit. They were going great guns for God. It's the breath. We are not called just to witness the people that we're comfortable with. We're called to share the gospel with everybody. You know, whether a Muslim, you know, we... We just need to love them, find a Muslim to befriend. Because Jesus died for him. He died for everybody. It's the breath of it. But boy, be filled with the Holy Spirit. We ought to be filled with the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so, well, it's not comfortable for me to share the gospel. Let me tell you this, and I'll finish with this. We become... What we love. And maybe it's because we love because of what we've become. Those things kind of fit together, don't they? But we start transitioning from who we are to what God wants us to be when we soak ourselves in the things of God, in His Word, and in what we read and what we listen to. Where's our hope? Where is our trust? If you you listen to stuff all day that is negative, you're going to become negative. If you read only stuff that's frustrating, you're going to live a frustrated life. It's okay to know what's going on in the world, but, but don't soak in it. Soak in what the answer to our world is. The answer to our world is the person of Jesus. You know, I, I, I saw a little clip of, of Dabo Sweeney, and he said, you know, this is the answer, and the last, last thing he says, "In Jesus Christ. He said, that's what I think. I think Jesus is the one that can fix our world and fix our culture and fix our nation and fix our problems. He is the one that can fix all of that. Read, this is my challenge to you. Read something about the call of God. Find something to read about the call of God, the call to evangelism, about sharing the gospel, about missions. You know, read a book on Victor Plymeyer, one of some of our great missionaries that had books written about him, or Catherine Booth, or D. L. Moody. I read D. L. Moody's biography that his son wrote about him, and I got an original copy of it. it's like printed in nineteen hundred about ten years after DL Moody died and it's in fragile condition <laughs> but I read it and that man was passionate about people about them knowing the Lord he was not educated he he was simple in his preaching They made fun of him. Preaching was a very sophisticated calling. I'm glad it stopped being that. (laughs) But that's why I yelled in Harvard. All of them were started as seminaries. All the Ivy League schools was to prepare preachers. You know, Jonathan Edwards had a grasp on Latin when he was like seven and went to League School when he was sixteen, and gave the valedictorian address in Latin. Almost all of them had mastered Hebrew and Greek, and Latin. Boy, that would thin out the pastors of churches if you had, <laughs> had that requirement. But here comes D.L. Moody in the middle of the 1800s, and he's he's a former shoe salesman. He has zero seminary. And yet he's out there talking to these kids on the streets of Chicago because his church didn't think he was qualified to teach a Sunday school class. So he saw all these kids not going to Sunday school and he started a ministry to street kids. And it just boomed. And then he ended up preaching revivals all over the world. Why would you see, God will use anyone that will surrender themselves to Him. Right. Our problem is we, we modify how much we surrender. We want to be in a safe environment. We, we don't want to be too stretched out there. And I want to challenge you to, to read things that stretches you. Read something. Read David Platt's books. Read somebody that's going to just, you know, like Dick Brogdon. Pull up his videos. You know, when I listen to Dick Brogdon, I just feel like I get body slammed by every other paragraph. (laughs) Like I'm I'm just scumbag. I'm not doing anything for God. But, uh, you know, maybe, well, you shouldn't. But I'm just telling you, I need people like that to push me. Because I'm not going to push myself as hard as I need to push myself. None of us will. We need voices challenging us. Challenging us as to what we're doing with our lives and what we're doing with every day and what we're doing with every opportunity. And I want to tell you, you know, War Room ought to give me some kind of commission. Because if everybody... A rented war room that I, that I told them they needed to. And I said, and if it doesn't change your life, you need to go back to where you rented and demand your money back. I ought to be getting a commission on that. But how hard is that to tell someone? We just need to get busy about the eternity of people. Because this world is falling apart. And our only hope is Jesus. Stand with me. Seriously, find a biography of somebody. You know, get, get acquainted with people like Dick Brogdon. That just listen, listen. You know, maybe this is unreasonable for me to think this way. But, you know, to be honest with you, I don't have any trouble sitting down and watching about a two-hour replay of the Alabama Ole Miss game. You know, I, I just go by the stuff I don't want to see and just pick what I really like to see. But, you know, the whole story of Keith Green is about an hour long. How much stuff we watch on television that's more than that, and that guy's story just blows me away. And his wife, Melanie, what a woman of God, kept that ministry, last day ministry going for years, long after he got killed. But I just says, "Lord, I want a little bit of Keith Green in my soul. I, I just want, I want to get infected. <laughs> With what he had.